two. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. May God bless the reading of his word. I'd like to invite Minister Taylor up to share with us today. Today's sermon title is A Good Start. Good morning, Crossbridge. Seems a little loud, but yeah, I'm very happy for the enthusiastic response. Um, so yeah, my name is Taylor. Uh, I get the opportunity to preach in Crossbridge about once every quarter, so thank you Pastor Jeff and Minister Pat for, for sharing the pulpit, but also I feel like most of the time when I get up here, I do have to reintroduce myself uh, again, as I know many of you, but there are a few of you that I haven't had the chance to meet just because the size of our congregation and everything, but I hope to get to know every one of you, uh, especially if you are a parent of a youth, uh, or if you are a youth, and especially those maybe entering into sixth grade. Um, I'm going to be in the youth group this coming uh, semester. I hope to get to know you. Uh, I do tend to be pretty serious when I preach, but I promise I am an approachable person, uh, or at least that is my goal and aim to be, uh, though we all have places and areas to grow. So, but yes, please come and say hi if you're a parent and I haven't got to know you yet, uh, and especially if you are a parent of a sixth grader coming into youth uh, this coming fall. Well, as we get to uh, the sermon, uh, one of the things that I was thinking of is um, sort of this idea of transition. Um, and so I wonder how many of us have ever been in part of a group where our leader transitioned out? Uh, maybe we can think about that in the workplaces when our bosses leave, or maybe we can think about that in our school when our teacher retires and we're going to get a new teacher or a principal, uh, or, or maybe in sports teams. Um, now, I, I realize I'm walking on thin ice by not being a native New Englander and mentioning Tom Brady, uh, but I, I wonder, how did you feel when Tom Brady announced that he is going to be leaving the Patriots or that he was going to be leaving the Patriots? Uh, moreover, how, how would you feel maybe if Tom Brady announced that he was coming back to the Patriots after the, the past two years? Well, we see that, and if you can uh, relate and, and think through some of those times, whenever there is a change in leadership, whether that be in our jobs or maybe that be our sports heroes, uh, it, it's filled, uh, with, it fills us oftentimes with a lot of anxiety, but sometimes also a lot of excitement as we look forward and see what the new person is going to, to do, uh, and just overall a lot of eagerness as we look through that transition. Well, as we're going through our sermon series today, we are in one of those same sorts of periods in the book of First Kings as David is about to die, and in our passage today, David uh, does pass away, and then Solomon then becomes king. And so as we look at this passage, there's kind of the, the main idea uh, that, I, that I hope to convey through looking at this passage or these few passages is that the people were eagerly awaiting a new king who would be greater than David and fulfill the promises that God made to David. But serious questions arise if Solomon will be the fulfillment of God's promises. So as we look, as we begin today, would you join me in prayer? 
Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look into your word today that you would speak to us, uh, that you would speak through me and just give me the words to say, and would you be in the foreground and would I be in the background? God, we pray also as we look into your word that we would see more than a story, but that we would also see you and come to know you more as you have acted and as you have interacted through this story. Um, So God, we we pray that you would just be with us in in our midst today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we uh, look at this passage, I want to encourage you to actually open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings. I'm going to be reading throughout various passages from both chapters 1 and 2. Uh, I do not have them all up on the PowerPoint, just as it would be a lot of different uh, verses. But I encourage you to read along as we look. And so our passage today to convey this idea that the people were eagerly awaiting a new king and how Solomon uh, fits into that, um, there's about six scenes that we can look at. There's more in the the passage that we're not going to get into some of the details today, but there are basically six scenes that kind of build up and convey this idea. But before we get into each of those six scenes, it is important for us to remember Uh, God's promises to David in the book of Samuel when God made a covenant with David. So again, as there's this time of transition for the people, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of eagerness, and even excitement. And a lot of that excitement is rooted in God's promises to David. And so both for the people of Israel and even for us as we're looking back into the story, this should be the backdrop in our mind of saying who is going to be David's replacement, who is going to sit on David's throne. And so God's promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is just a a few parts of the greater chapter, uh, but it says, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are filled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So as we come to this passage, this is the backdrop of God's promises to David. And these are some weighty things. These are some big promises, especially as we see your throne shall be established forever. So the anxiety, the excitement is, will God be faithful to his promises? And so as we open up, I want to look first at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And so in scene 1, we see the pathetic old king. So 1 Kings 1, verses 1 through 4. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. 
So they sought for uh, they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. <clears throat> the young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. As we open up the, the book of 1 Kings, David is not portrayed in a good light. Uh, for first, he was, he's portrayed as very old and brittle and frail. Uh, he's not even able to keep warm in his own strength. Other than his own strength and his own power, he's also portrayed in this sort of moral, ambiguous sort of situation as uh, they bring this beautiful young woman to kind of tend to him and keep him warm. Although the, the passage is very clear that uh, he knew her not, he was not intimate with her, uh, but nevertheless, there, there is this sort of moral ambiguity. Not only is the king weak and frail, but it also raises questions of, is David, at the end of his life, is he being obedient as God's king? Is he doing what a king should do? And so our second scene that we see in the backdrop of David's weakness is we see the opportunistic power grab. So in scene two, we learn of Adonijah. And Adonijah is David's eldest living son. Uh, he was not the, the firstborn, but he was David's oldest uh, still living son. And in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and then in 9 through 10, we see uh, what's going on here. It says, uh, so verse 5, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. And then skipping down to verse 9, Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside in Rogel. And he invited the brothers, the king's sons, and the royal uh, officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon his brother. So again, Adonijah is David's oldest son, and in the backdrop of David's weakness, he goes forward and proclaims himself to be king. Now you could say that Adonijah has some rights to the throne as David's oldest living son, but we definitely see that he goes about things all wrong. Uh, so, so first, we, we know that Solomon is actually God's choice of king uh, to be replaced after David. And we see in other places in 1 Chronicles 28 uh, indications that David had made it known that Solomon would be the king that uh, comes after David. So Adonijah, rather than going through David to be appointed king, as would be standard, he exalts himself, the author tells us, and proclaims himself to be king. What's really interesting as well is in verse 9, uh, where uh, Adonijah is having his sort of celebration of being pronounced king, it, it says that he offered the sacrifices of sheep and oxen and fattened cattle by the serpent stone. Uh, the serpent stone may be a reference or may bring us back to, or the readers back to, the, the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and how the serpent is there to snuff out the seed of the woman uh, who will eventually trample the serpent's head. There's a lot in there that we don't have time to, to chase that rabbit, tail, uh, that rabbit trail down. Uh, but we see the, the significance of that is that Adonijah is basically being as one who would trample over or who would overturn God's plan uh, through Solomon by doing all these things near the serpent stone. Uh, so the opportunistic power grab. 
Uh, and what's also interesting at this point, again, is going back to David, is David is clueless about what is going on in his kingdom. And that brings us to the third scene where the prophet uh, intervenes and the concerned mother. So going on to now to verses 11 through 18, it says, Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you are still speaking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. And continuing on in verse 15. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Uh, now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shumite, Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? She said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon shall be your son, uh, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, and although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. And so, again, David is not portrayed in a positive light in the scene. It's kind of reminiscent of if we look back to uh, 2 Samuel and we see David's greatest sin uh, when he had Bathsheba uh, and then you know, Uriah and that whole incident. Uh, one of the things that was significant about David's sin with Bathsheba, if you remember, is that it happened and occurred at a time where the kings were supposed to be off to war. David was supposed to be out in the battlefields with his people, but rather than being out in the battlefields, he was at home in his palace. Again, in this passage, we're kind of reminded of that, or we at least see the same behavior, because David should have been the proactive king that is appointing and orchestrating and making sure that Solomon takes hold of the throne. But rather than David doing his job as king, we see him sitting around with his servants uh, and kind of lounging around. And so then Nathan the prophet, in the same way that Nathan rebukes David in 2 Samuel after his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan also steps in again in this scene and addresses David through uh, Bathsheba. And so David is not portrayed in a positive light, but after enough prompting, we see the old king finally takes action and names the new king. So skipping on down uh, a few verses to verse 32, uh, we see where this is, is happening. So in verse 32, it says, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to him, Take, take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. 
May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the King, say so. And the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so. May he be with Solomon, and may he make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So now David is finally acting, and David is acting very swiftly and very clearly. And this is something reminds us maybe a little bit more of David in his former glory of slaying giants um, or of ruling the kingdom. Uh, he has Solomon ride on his donkey, and that may remind us of Jesus riding on the donkey going into Jerusalem and Palm Sunday. Uh, but the, the greater picture for our immediate context is Solomon riding on the donkey is a picture that he is the one to walk after David. He is the one who, sit, who is to sit on the throne after David. Uh, it's sort of uh, an inauguration or a ceremony to indicate that Solomon uh, is to be king. And then, of course, his being anointed king uh, by the prophets and by the priest uh, is to signify that, that he is the one who is truly going to sit on the throne. And in the same way that, uh, that Adonijah is proclaiming himself king by the serpent stone, and that brings forth pictures of the, the serpent in the garden and overthrowing God's chosen, now, Solomon is anointed king at this place in Gihon, which represents further sorts of uh, things as we see it throughout. Um, not going to get into some of those details, but it's um, a picture of Solomon's being anointed king, being God's choice of king. And so, of course, um, as Solomon is now anointed king, uh, that raises questions of, well, what's going to happen to Adonijah, his older brother, who has proclaimed himself king? And so the end of chapter 1 uh, in verses 49 through 51 briefly mentions Adonijah again. It says uh, in verse 49, Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar, then it was told to Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Um, and then we see that Solomon basically says, If uh, Adonijah remains, kind of goes back into his place, I will not put him to death. Um, we'll, we'll see something that, that comes back again briefly anyway, with Adonijah in the next chapter. So as we move along in the story, the next scene is now the father's wisdom to his son. The father's wisdom to his son, meaning King David's uh, fatherly wisdom to Solomon, his son. And so we see this actually coming in two different verse sections, two different sections, the father's godly wisdom, and then we see next uh, the father's worldly wisdom. So first, uh, then this is some of the passages that we read um, for our scripture reading this morning. It was in 2 Kings now, in verses 1 through 4. It says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke 
uh, concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their ways, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so David is, again, at least acting, he's doing something. He's sitting on his throne, uh, having this intimate conversation with Solomon and giving him this wisdom. And these passages, we could definitely and we should commend David and the advice that he gives. Uh, be strong and show yourself a man. It's kind of reminiscent of uh, Joshua and of other passages um, going back to the establishment of Israel. Uh, David's advice is good. It's to follow the law, to follow the Lord, uh, to be obedient and to walk in the ways of the law. It is to do what a king ought to do. And so David's advice first comes in very good ways, to, to be faithful to the covenant, to be faithful as a king, and to be obedient to the covenant and the stipulations that, that God has given him. But unfortunately, David doesn't stop there. This is where we start to see even more questions in our passage. So in verses 5 through 9, five through nine and I encourage us not to read over these really quickly, but to actually think, what, what is David charging Solomon to do? So verse 5, it says, uh, right after this, the good advice, follow the law, be obedient to God. Now verse 5, moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of war and peace for blood that he had shed in war and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the house of Barzillai and Gildeite, and let them be among those whom eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there also with you Shimei, the son of Gura, the Benjaminite from Behurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I swore to Mahaniam, Mehamayam, and when he came down to meet me at the Jordan. I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. <laughs> and so David's first wisdom is be obedient to the Lord, follow the covenant, follow the law. And part two is his wisdom, if we call it, is to get revenge on everybody that wronged David and to kill the person whom David promised that he wouldn't kill because, well, he wasn't the one that killed, it, so killed him, so I guess it's okay, right? Uh, and, and so we see a very worldly wisdom. And what we see as well is a few hints of, or a few uh, Easter eggs, so to speak, of what's to come with Solomon. Uh, verse 6, it says, Act therefore according to your wisdom. And in verse 9, it says, Solomon, speaking of Solomon, that you are a wise man. And so it's a foreshadow of Solomon's true wisdom that we will see next time. 
uh, and as Solomon kind of reigned, but it raises the question of what sort of wisdom does Solomon have? And so that brings us to the last scene where we see the ruthless wisdom of the new king. And so Solomon carries out all of the wisdom of David. Part of the the first wisdom, and if we fast forward to the future scenes, we'll see that in some ways he fulfilled being obedient to the laws of God. But he definitely, in the remaining chapter, the remaining passages in chapter 2, he fulfilled all of the commands or the urgings of David to get revenge. Um, And so if we look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 46, there's kind of a good uh, summary here. It says, then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went down and struck him down and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So throughout the next scene and all the passages that we skipped between there, uh, the last verse and, and verse 46, we see that Solomon takes care of everyone. Adonijah comes back into the scene and makes one last sort of power grab trying to get to the throne and says, hey, let me marry, um, let me marry David's servant, uh, Abishag. And then because of that, Solomon has him put to death. Solomon has uh, Joab put to death and all these others. And so... Because of the king's ruthless wisdom, the throne is established in his hand. And going back just a little bit, uh, another kind of good uh, summary passage or verse is verses 10 through 12. It says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. And so as we think of the story, as we look back through and think about it, uh, it raises a few questions for us. So obviously we, we do see now Solomon is the successful, or at least successful in the sense that he has the power. Uh, he's the successful heir to David. He is sitting on the throne by means of murdering his older brother, and by means of a lot of bloodshed and violence, he is sitting on the throne, and his throne is firmly established, but nevertheless, he is sitting on his throne. Um, So then that raises the question, Solomon, a good start? Well, was it a good start? I I don't really think this passage gives us a very clear answer to that. Uh, On the one hand, we do see that, that God's sovereignty is working through, that Solomon does, in fact, sit on the throne, But for Solomon, his reign and his ascension to the throne is marked with all sorts of moral ambiguity. Not only that, we also see that David in his final acts, that that his life was, yes, marked somewhat by faithfulness, but also marked with a lot of compromise. He wasn't acting as a king should act. And so did Solomon start off well? Kind of, but that's not the full picture. And of course, perhaps the more important question as we look at Solomon's ascension to the throne is the question, is God faithful to his promises? Is God faithful to his promises? Especially the promises that he made to David, that David's descendants will sit on the throne forever, that they will be established. Um, I'm running out of time to, to go through all this, but this is where the story is really, really cool. It's really, David, this whole sermon series is really, really messy. 
It is really messy. It, it is full of murder, a lot of bloodshed, a lot of drama we kind of skipped over a little bit or briefly mentioned, but it is really, really messy. But you know what's awesome throughout all of that mess? Is God is in control and he is sovereign all the way through. Even the mess of Solomon, even through his moral questionable actions, through David's questionable actions, God is sovereign. Now, as far as is, does David or does Solomon fulfill the covenant, the promises that God made to David? Uh, I don't have a lot of time to get into that, but th- there's this idea of the already but not yet. There's certain promises that God made to David that are fulfilled in Solomon, but there are certain promises that, as we know, point forward to a greater king that will come after Solomon, a new king after the line of David. Uh, And that king we know is Jesus, whose throne is established forever and whose reign is eternal. But what about for us? What about for us? That's the passage. (laughs) There's a lot of things there. But what about for us? What does that mean for us? Well, I hope that we can learn a little bit about the character of God as we see him working throughout all the messiness. But also as we reflect on in our lives, our lives in a lot of ways, just like David and Solomon, hopefully they're not as messy, but our lives are still pretty messy. Now, I don't know about you, but for most of us, after we become a Christian, after we decide to follow Jesus, a lot of times our life really doesn't get easier. We still struggle with sin. We still have some of the same struggles maybe with depression or with anxiety or the same consequences of living in a fallen and broken world. And so then that could raise the question, is God faithful? Didn't Jesus deal with sin? Didn't Jesus defeat sin and death? Why do we still face all these consequences? And it goes back to the same thing. Is is God faithful to the promises he made to David? Well, yes, already, but also not yet. And so for us who live in a very broken world, in a very messy world, filled with sin, both our own and sin of all those around us, in the same way of Solomon and David, of just sin, brokenness, messiness, what are we to do? This is the one point of application that I would like us to have, is to look to God. Is to look to God and to focus on his bigger picture and what he's doing. It would be really easy to focus in on all the details of Solomon and for Solomon to really become depressed and hopeless. And it would really be tempting for us, too, to look at all those details of these three kings and say things are hopeless. It would be tempting for the Israelites to look at these things and say things are hopeless. But we have the privilege of knowing the rest of the story. Now, we don't have the privilege of knowing the rest of the story for our lives. But we know that the same God who is orchestrating, who is sovereign through all this messiness, who is working things for his glory, we know that he is the same God who is over our lives. And we know that he is faithful and that we can trust in the promises that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. God is working all things for your good if you love him, and all things for his glory. And so rather than reflecting on our broken estate, I'm not saying we can't, but I encourage you to spend a little bit more time reflecting on God's picture, reflecting on God's point of view rather than our own, and knowing that he is faithful, that he has a plan. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to know all of these stories from the Old Testament because, God, they, they teach us about you in ways that we wouldn't otherwise know. We see your patience. We see your sovereignty. We see your plan, even through all of the messiness. And so, God, for us, we pray that our lives would be a little less messy, that we would more and more reflect obedience to you and walking in your ways, that your kingdom would come here on earth more and more every day. But in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the messiness, we pray that we would look to you and that we would see your point of view, that we would see what you are doing. And God, we pray that we would have hope and that we would have faith in the promises and in your sovereignty and in the things that you are doing. God, help us look to you. Help us have faith in you, especially when our eyes cannot see. God, we don't know in so many ways, but we thank you that you do know that you have a plan, that you are our rock and our foundation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.